Father, I'm so thankful for uh, being a part of this church family. I'm thankful for the people that are here and so blessed and honored to be able to uh, serve and minister to this congregation of people who loves you. Uh, Lord, this morning we think of all the churches all over the world gathered together in your name, and I imagine just the, just the sweetness that, that must be for you in heaven as our praises rise to you and our prayers become before you as you hear your word repeated uh, from place to place, Lord. This morning I want to uh, thank you specifically for Harriman Chapel, Lord, and the uh, leaders that you have out there right now. I thank you for uh, Dan Meyer and Dick Lennox who are filling in teaching until we can find them a pastor, Lord. I pray that you would uh, bring the right person at the right time in the right way for that church uh, that would be there to edify and build up the body of Christ there. Uh, Lord, I would ask uh, for uh, the ministries that we have uh, the opportunity to serve here in Cheyenne, Lord. I also thank for and thankful for uh, Calvary South and Josh and Vanessa Hedham and the work that they're doing and that church plant over on the other side of town, Lord. What a blessing it is to hear of the great things you're doing in their community and their church, Lord. The uh, people who've come to Christ, the people who are growing in their faith, the people who are hearing the word preached in a way they never have before. Uh, just so thankful that we are uh, so blessed to be able to be a part of that. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the food pantry ministry that we have here at our church and for uh, Lori Pock and her work in coordinating and organizing that and then uh, the, the volunteers that we have here uh, at the church that uh, come in during the week to help uh, distribute that food to people as they have need. Uh, Lord, we would pray that, uh, that the, the meeting of their physical needs with food uh, would lead to opportunity to meet their spiritual needs with your word. Uh, that from that ministry, we wouldn't just be filling people's uh, bellies, but instead we would also be filling them with the, the knowledge of who you are and of your son who loves them so much. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, as we get into the word this morning, uh, you would be speaking clearly through your word, that you would use it to, to build us up and to edify us, to strengthen us, Father, that your word would guide us and direct us, that it would uh, not just teach us, but reprove us and correct us, uh, train us for all righteousness, Lord, that we would see uh, just a greater picture of how much you've loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, in order for this to work, I have to be done preaching by a certain time. So if, you know, if at 10 o'clock, if I'm still like in the middle of my passage, um, somebody should go like this to me or something like that, like, Sean, pick it up. And so, but in order to pick it up, I have to start it up. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're going to be uh, working through this passage as we have all the others, but we're working our way towards Easter Sunday. And so we're going through this last week of the life of Jesus. By the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. But uh, working our way towards Easter Sunday for us, but also working through the last week of the life of Jesus, which is, uh, I think, kind of just uh, a God-given moment for us as a church to really align our teaching as we've just been working through the Gospel of Mark with that last week of Jesus. And so for us, uh, this morning we'll be looking specifically at the Passover meal of Jesus. Next week we'll see His arrest. The week after that, His crucifixion. And then on Easter Sunday, we will see the week after that, uh, we will see His resurrection. And so pretty excited about how this is all kind of playing out and laying itself down together. Uh, one of the things I'm encouraging you guys to do as much as possible is you know what we're reading for the next week, week to week, because I've gov given you the schedule. So wherever I end today, I would suggest reading through the rest of chapter 14 this week and do it maybe several times so that the Word can kind of already be working in your heart so that when we begin to preach the Word, the two go together and the Holy Spirit can do some pretty exciting things. So it begins here in verse 
one, as most chapters do. See what I did there? Same joke, 14 years in a row. <laughs> and it still gets laughs. That's what's great about it. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now something has to be pointed out here at the beginning of chapter 14, that this section, the first 11 verses, are out of chronological order, that Mark uh, never promised he was going in chronological order, but for the most part in this last week he has been. Uh, and then suddenly he backs up a couple of days to tell us uh, two particular stories. Number one is uh, about the plot to kill Jesus, and then number two, the anointing that's going to happen to him uh, at Bethany by Mary. And so we'll be looking at those two things before we jump to verse 12, which gets us back on the timeline. Verse 12 will be the first day of unleavened bread. But in this passage, it says that it's two days away from unleavened bread. And it says this, now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And I think we need to take just a minute to remind ourselves what Passover and unleavened bread are. Uh, it's important for this reason. When you understand what's going on with the nation of Israel at the time that Jesus is in Jerusalem, you'll start to get a fuller picture of what God is accomplishing by having Jesus be put to death at this moment in time. There's a specific reason. You might recall this at different times in Jesus' ministry. They sought to seize him. They sought to get a hold of him and to arrest him and to kill him. They tried on multiple occasions, but it never worked out. And this, the essential answer kept coming back to something Jesus would say over and over again is it's, it's not my time yet. It's just not the right time. God had preordained and planned out the events of these things in such a way so that Jesus would die on specific days in a specific pattern and for the specific purpose of highlighting the overarching plan of God in redeeming his people. So when we look at these two festivals, these two feasts, uh, these are what are called the springtime feasts. There's four of them that the nation of Israel was in the habit, uh, that had the tradition, had the law that required them to celebrate these four feasts every spring and God had designed these feasts and festivals for the nation of Israel as a reminder of the things that God had done in their history. So imagine a world that doesn't have this, where not every person has a Bible or has the ability to open up their iPad or their iPhone or Google it on their computer and find the written Word of God. But imagine a world, world before the printing press where making a copy of the Bible would have been difficult. God still wanted to proclaim and teach His people and so to do that, again, he institutes these feasts and festivals so that every year they get these reminders of the great things that God has done. And that allowed the parents and the families to pass on that information to their children so that their kids could learn these things. It was kind of this great nationwide uh, training program to keep everybody in, my, in mind of the very basics of the things that God had done. So when we get to the celebration of the Passover, we're celebrating a specific event in the history of nation of Israel. Uh, that is that they were in slavery and in bondage in Egypt. You might have remembered that. Uh, you remember the whole let my people go type thing uh, that we've seen with Moses. And uh, kind of as we plan through and think through that, you might remember that there were 10 plagues. Do you recall what the 10th plague was? It was the death of all the firstborn children 
in the land of Egypt. But God provided a way of salvation for the Israelites' firstborn children. Uh, What they were to do was to bring a lamb into their home. They would sacrifice that lamb and they would take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of their house. And when the angel of death passed over those houses that had the blood, he would not take their firstborn child. God allowed all of those who believed in him and his word, which was clearly marked and evident because they had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, those were spared from the tragedy of this particular famine that hit the land or this plague that God sent on the land that killed the firstborn children. And so that was known as Passover. And then year to year in the spring, the people of the nation of Israel were required by God to celebrate the Passover. And so they have this whole meal uh, that goes through and explains the story, and they will reread those portions of the Scripture if they have them. Uh, But they go through this whole process to remind the people of God that God has saved His people by the blood of the Lamb. So wouldn't it make perfect sense that that wasn't just a telling of the past, but God used it as a prophetic retelling for the future so that year to year that the people of Israel would be reminded that their salvation would come by the blood of the Lamb. And then when Jesus will eventually be crucified, He who is known as the the Lamb of God, it's a pointing to us a reminder that it was the Lamb of God's blood who took away our sins and provided our salvation. All of this is playing forward. So God has prophetically laid this out, but he's also established it uh, in, in kind of this really neat way that it wasn't just a few people scattered everywhere, but these are also what are called pilgrimage feasts. So you have Passover, unleavened bread, uh, then after that, you have the uh, Feast of first fruits, and then 50 days after that, you have what's called the Day of Pentecost. Well, those first three spring feasts, all the people of Israel are supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So it's not just that they're celebrating the blood of the Lamb, but they're now all gathered together in the very place where Jesus is going to be crucified. So now Jesus' death is going to happen before the entire nation of Israel. Everybody will hear about it. And then when that pilgrimage feast is over, they're all going to go home and take with them the knowledge and the understanding that there was a lamb to be the sacrifice for all. It's kind of a pretty powerful way that God has ordained all of this to fit together. Now, the second feast mentioned there is called unleavened bread. If you want to get more information about these, the quickest way is to turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 23, not now. Well, when the sermon gets a little boring, you can just start reading it. That's fine too. But Leviticus chapter 23 is the one that lays out the feast and festival schedule for the nation of Israel. Specifically, these feasts is in verse 5 through 22. But it kind of lays out some more of the detail. But the uh, unleavened bread comes immediately the day after Passover. Oftentimes, these were seen kind of as one feast because they're just all in a row there for eight days. So you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is celebrating not that they were saved in Egypt, but that they then left the land. And so what God had told them to do was instead of leavening their bread, they needed to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. That when it was time for them to leave Egypt, it was going to be in a hurry. So he told them for seven days, I don't want you to let your dough rise. I want you to make bread that you can eat that doesn't need yeast, that doesn't need rising, so you can leave in an instant. 
And as a reminder of that, that God brought them out of that slavery in Egypt into the promised land, they will every year do an entire week where they eat bread that's unleavened, that doesn't have yeast in it. It's an unraised bread, and it's exactly the same type of bread that you see here that we take with communion week to week. It's all connected together. And then after that, the first fruits, which actually will fall as it turns out on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then 50 days later on Pentecost was when the Spirit fell on the church the first time. God taking His Old Testament prophecies, these festivals, to give us the pattern of what He was going to do in the future played out for us here. So here it is now, two days before that, and the highest religious leaders in the land, uh, the priests and the scribes, are seeking how to seize and kill Jesus. Let that sink in for just a minute. The chief priests and the scribes were trying to figure out how they could seize and kill, kill somebody. They want to kill him. How they could kill somebody. The highest religion. Think about that. Isn't that shocking to your brain? Like they who are supposed to be representatives of God, who are supposed to teach the world, thou shalt not, what? Kill. The Ten Commandments. Like this is like the simplest of things. But they were so offended by who Jesus was and what he was doing that they begin to plot a way that they can get a hold of him, arrest him, and then put him to death. Now that has some difficulties with it. Uh, number one, because the nation of Israel was at that time occupied by the Romans, they did not have authority to put people to death. So they have some real plotting to do here. They have to figure out a way to make this work. Uh, problem number two is they also know that Jesus has a lot of followers at this point. That as he's been traveling around, all these people began following after Jesus. They want to do uh, they want to learn more from Jesus. They were impressed with the way that he taught. They were impressed by the miraculous things that he did, the healings that he did. All of these things had all of the people all stirred up, and they loved Jesus. And now these guys want to put him to death. Well, you don't want to do that during the feast, the festival, because you'll cause a riot. Because all these people are together in one place, and if you kill a guy that they really like, that's going to become very awkward for you as the religious leaders. So they're trying to think of a plot. They're trying to think of a plan in which they can accomplish this task, that they can make this work out, that they can put to death our Savior, Jesus Christ. But these are, I mean, I, just to put it in terms like this, could you imagine if it was uncovered that the Pope had a, an assassination plot to kill somebody who disagreed with him? Like, people would be a little bit freaked out by that, I would imagine. That's what this is like, that the religious leaders of the nation of Israel want to murder Jesus. And they're trying to figure out how to do this. Now, this isn't a new thing. Uh, all the way back in Mark chapter 3, we saw even the Pharisees were trying to find a way to put Jesus to death, to silence him, or as they put it, to destroy him. You see it again in Mark chapter 12, that same concept, that same idea. So all throughout Jesus' ministry, they were trying to quiet him, to shut him down, or destroy him, or kill him. But now we have kind of this heightened awareness because Jesus has announced already to his disciples, when I get to Jerusalem, they will beat me, they will kill me, 
and I will rise again. So it's all coming together. Now imagine being one of those 12 living with Jesus for a couple of years, coming into Jerusalem, knowing that he has said to you when he gets there, he's going to die. And so now here they are in Jerusalem, and there's this plot going on in the background. Well, verse 3 continues on, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do to them. uh, But you do not always, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be, uh, will also be spoken of in memory of her. So now we have the anointing of Jesus. So uh, you might recall that during the day they would be in Jerusalem. During the night they would leave the city and they would go to various places. But one of the places that they seemed to be going was the city of Bethany, not far there from Jerusalem. And it seems that they would spend the night there. So when they get into the home of Mary, who you might recall, she had a brother named Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead, and a sister named Martha. So you remember Mary and Martha. Mary was busy worshiping Jesus. Martha was just busy. And Martha says to Jesus, would you tell my sister to help? And Jesus says, Martha, why don't you just sit down and worship like your sister? Kind of sets sets things straight. Well, this is their house. Now, a Jewish custom, a very simple tradition of the time, uh, was that in order to make sure your house doesn't smell like a teenage boy's locker room, because imagine this is a time without deodorant, without daily showers. This is a dry and dusty climate. Uh, These are people are not wearing the tech gear that Nike has that's breathable fabric. So these people that are walking pretty much everywhere they go or riding an animal that would have a scent of its own, they've now all entered your house. If you could imagine all 12 of the disciples and Jesus coming in after walking from Jerusalem, spending the day there, likely not showered, likely not smelling great. A tradition would be when somebody would come to your home, you would take just a couple drops of an aromatic oil and you just put it on their head. And then now you have this nice little smell that maybe kind of helps cover up their smell, their natural musk, if you will, their manly smell, just to kind of cover that a little bit. So that wasn't atypical to be able to have those oils around to do this. But what's really weird in this particular moment is as Jesus is reclining there, Mary goes and gets this alabaster jar, this kind of beautiful jar. She breaks it open. And she doesn't put just a couple of drops on Jesus' head. She pours the whole thing on Jesus' head. And just, could you imagine just this whole thing of this oil, essential oils, if you're into essential oils, it's like that. 
but it's a whole giant bottle of it just poured all over his head. Can you imagine it just running down his hair and dripping off of his beard? Running down over his clothes and down his body to the point even so much that in the Gospel of John where it describes it, it says, she then got down and took her hair and wiped his feet with that oil. Could you think of any other position that would show a greater amount of worship for somebody than to get down on the ground at their feet and take your own hair and cleanse their feet with this oil. Now that kind of makes a scene, wouldn't you think, in the room where everybody's looking at her like, what did she just do? Like, that's just not normal. Now imagine as the fragrance of that begins to fill the entire room, and everybody can smell what she's done. Everybody can see what she's done. I imagine her laying there at his feet, wiping his feet with her hair, weeping as she worships Jesus in this way, serving the body of Jesus Christ in such a powerful way. And as much as it sounds a little bit weird to us, I actually imagine to Jesus that that oil actually felt good. And I know that sounds weird, but it's kind of like, uh, when you're all dry and cracked skin and you begin to put the lotion on there, and after that first initial sting, because you're really dry, or that's what happens to me, then it kind of starts to feel good. And that's kind of what it would be like, like as that oil just kind of began to soak into his skin and loosen up that tight and dried up skin. And so now all of a sudden, in the middle of this beautiful moment, we're told in the other Gospels, that Judas speaks up first and goes, you've got to be kidding me. Do you know how much that perfume was worth? 300 days wages. 300 days wages. Couldn't we have done something better with that money? Instead of anoint Jesus' body? Couldn't we have found some better way to spend the money? And then the other disciples are like, yeah, that, that is a lot of money. Why don't you just give us the oil, we could sell it and we could use that money to, to provide for the poor. And so now people start scolding her as she's doing this thing to worship Jesus who raised her brother from the dead. They're scolding this poor gal. Well, Jesus is going to now have to defend her a second time. First, it was a, a while back with her sister Martha because she was worshiping and not working. Here again, Jesus is going to protect her and he's going to say, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed for me. You will always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. Uh, you know what this tells me in this circumstance? she recognized and understood better what Jesus was about to do than his own 12 disciples. And whether this was inspired by the Holy Spirit or if she came up with this on her own, we don't know. But in this moment, she had a clearer understanding than the 12 disciples that Jesus is about to die. And as she considers her Savior who she loves, the man who raised her brother from the dead, when she considers his death, there's no amount of sacrifice she wouldn't do for him. There's no cost 
that she would set aside, that would say, this is too much for my Savior. And so she takes probably, likely, one of the most expensive things in her home. I mean, 300 days wages. She busts it open and pours it over her Savior. So wasteful, they thought. That's just bad stewardship, they thought. But Jesus said, no. And this is good worship right here. Uh, There is in me, at least, a little bit of a jealousy that goes along with this. You know, Mary and those disciples experienced a, a Jesus, experienced Jesus in a way we never have. In this personal, face-to-face way. And I sometimes wonder how I would respond to the actual physical Jesus Christ standing right before me. Because I'm Mr. Socially Awkward Man. I'm sure I would want to say to him how much I love him, how much I care for him, how much I appreciate him, but it would probably be bookended by a couple of really stupid, sarcastic comments. He, you know, I would, I would move in for a bro hug, like, hey man, hit the shoulders while I shake his hand. But it's Jesus. Here she is. She doesn't care who's in the room. She recognizes who is before her. and She just worships him completely unattached from what everybody else might think or what everybody else might do. She just worships him. Well, I love how this ends. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And here we are 2,000 years later recognizing what this woman did for her Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's, it's powerful. And it's interesting in this because it doesn't like describe this like a whole scene, like where she says, everybody pay attention to me. I have a, a little thing I would like to do today in honor of Jesus. She did not care about anybody else in the room. She wasn't looking for personal praise. She was simply work, looking to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. But Jesus recognized that Mombatis is so much more powerful than the average type of worship, a greater amount of love than the average amount of love, so much so that he wanted it commemorated for all time, that everybody would remember that moment where she anointed him in this way. It is interesting, too, that as she does this, she's then going to wipe his feet with her hair in a couple of hours or a couple of days, depending on how you interpret that section there. They're going to have the Passover dinner in the Gospel of John. It tells us that Jesus will then wash the feet of his disciples. Almost as if he saw her act of worship and said, hey, as powerful as that was, now when I do that for you, that's the type of servants I want you to be. It's such a powerful picture as it all begins to play together. Well, Judas was not happy about any of this. It says in verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Uh, So now remember that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people were all looking for a way to seize Jesus and betray him. 
They don't want to do it during the festival. They don't want to do it when there's a crowd of people because they could put an end to that real quick. So they're trying to figure out, and it's a difficult nut to crack. crack. And then all of a sudden, here comes one of the twelve, Judas, who comes to them and says, hey, I think I've had enough of this Jesus guy. I'm going to I'm going to sell him out to you. I'm going to set it up so that you guys can, can get him out of the picture. The motivation seems, both from this passage and the other Gospels, the motivation seems to be almost purely financial. It makes mention in the other Gospels. But Judas was the one that was in charge of holding all the money for the disciples. So obviously a pretty well-trusted guy, right? Like the guy you have holding the money is the guy you trust the most. All the disciples trusted him. But here he was, the the, the accountant of the twelve, if you will, and he sees this wasteful act and he thinks to himself, man, I, I could have been in charge of that money. We also see in one of the Gospels that he was also stealing a little of the money for himself. Man, if I could have just stolen a little bit of those 300 days wages. So he's going to go make up for his loss by betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he's going to be seeking an opportunity to betray him in the Gospel of Luke, it specifically says, seeking an opportunity when there isn't a crowd around to protect Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen uh, not too long after that in the, in the garden. Uh, we'll see that next Sunday as we look at it. But then it moves on uh, as, again, all of this is leading up to the Passover, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare, you to eat this, the pass, prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover and my disciples? With my disciples. And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it uh, just as he had told them, uh, and they prepared uh, the Passover. So now they're moving on. It's time for the Passover. They're going to that evening have this Passover meal to commemorate what God had done in bringing the people out of Egypt, in saving them to commemorate the blood of the Lamb, to have the commemoration of the unleavened bread, this whole thing where he brings them out of Egypt, into the promised land, out of bondage, into freedom. All of that is going to be celebrated in this particular meal, what's also known as a Seder meal. Uh, All of this is planned out by Jesus, but apparently not by the disciples. And so they come to Jesus at kind of the last minute and say, hey, where do you want to eat the Passover meal? And basically, Jesus says, I already got this figured out. Now, we don't know if this was like miraculous, like in the moment. He's like, okay, oh, I see a guy. Yep, by the time you get there, he's going to be carrying water. I know that guy. I'll let us use his house. So ask him and then prepare it there. It could have been a miraculous thing like that. It could have been like on the way out of town. He's like, oh, hey, dude, here's 20 bucks. Uh, Could you have your house ready for us? We're going to do Passover at your house in a couple of days. Thanks. Bye. And then they leave for Bethany. We don't know how it actually happened. But what we know is he sends two disciples. It happens to be from the other Gospels. We learn uh, Peter and John. They go. Everything is just as Jesus has told them it was going to be. And they prepare this kind of uh, this, this meal that they're going to take together, this Passover meal that is going to be for us re-identified as the 
Last Supper or Communion. This idea of, of the Eucharist that you might have heard of from different uh, Christian backgrounds. But all of this will be symbolically played out as we take part in communion here uh, in a little bit. So in verse 17, it says, When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And so here they are having what is supposed to be this amazing ceremonial meal, this important meal that's important not just historically to their people, remembering what God has done, but from Jesus' perspective, recognizing that this is his last meal with them. It's supposed to be this incredibly poignant moment where he can, I don't even, you can even imagine what that's like, to have your last meal with somebody that you love. He's gathered them together. He's got all of his most beloved disciples right there sharing this last meal. And it's in this moment that he lets them know, oh, by the way, one of you will betray me. And all of them are like, oh, well, it's surely not I, which is another way of saying it's probably one of the other 11. I imagine in that moment, Judas's name wasn't the first one that came to their mind, honestly. Because again, he was apparently well-trusted. He's the guy that held their money. Like apparently they thought highly of this guy. I don't know if they just kind of was like, surely not I, but probably that guy right there. I don't know how they played that all out. But all of them were just, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way any of us would ever betray you, Jesus. Well, Just to put this into a greater perspective, right here he says, one of you will betray me. Next Sunday we're going to look at when he says, but all of you will abandon me. And so Judas will be guilty of the betrayal, that's true. And he will forever be remembered as the traitor. And people will have long-winded debates on whether or not this guy is in hell or not. But all of the disciples, all of the twelve, who spent time with Jesus when their life was on the line, when their faith didn't make sense, they all abandoned him for a time as well. I think it's a good warning for us. It's a good thing to kind of watch out for ourselves. That we can kind of get to this mindset and think to ourselves that, oh, surely not I. Well, I would never abandon my faith. I would never walk away from my Savior. And I'm not talking about the theological if you can or cannot. That's a completely different question. But just for us personally to guard ourselves, to recognize that there will or might be times in your life where your faith is going to make so little sense that it's going to be hard for you to worship God. There are going to be times in your life where where the things that you believed were true and obvious don't make as much sense as they do because you're trying to process your own grief or your own pain or your own difficult circumstances or maybe even your own death as these guys ultimately will get to that point by questioning if they join him, will they die with him? 
where it might lead you to a place where well, even today you're saying, surely not I, but in that day, in that day, you may slowly, maybe even begrudgingly begin to walk away from that which you believe to be true today. You see, I think it's important to know that that's possible so that you can guard against it. And those who are cavalier and say it's impossible, I always think those are the guys that are going to be most likely to have that happen to. And I don't say it to scare anybody or anything like that, but I just know in those moments where I most struggled with my faith, when I stood up in those moments and said, I will not abandon what I believe to be true, even if none of it works out for my benefit, even if none of this misery goes away, even if none of this pain or difficulty goes away, I will not abandon what I believe true. My faith came out of that stronger because I was willing to deal with it. I didn't have kind of this this Pollyanna approach to things that, oh, now that I'm a Christian, my life's going to be perfect and easy from here on out. No, your life is just going to be like everybody else's life. It's going to have ups and downs, good days and bad days. People you know and love are going to leave you or betray you. People you know and love are going to suffer pain and difficulty, and you're going to be there in those moments, and you can either choose to blame God or to stand with God in those moments. But you have to be prepared. So after he tells them that they would betray him in the middle of this kind of ceremonial meal uh, somewhere. Uh, well, you, if you've ever done one of the Passover seders, they have these four cups of wine that kind of designate different things that they do. Uh, but somewhere in between the third and fourth cup, so one of those two cups there, depending on uh, how you would read that. But anyway, while they were eating that meal that's supposed to be so special and so important, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the the Mount of Olives. And so now... As they're taking part in this Passover Seder, Jesus begins to take some of the elements of that particular meal and he begins to reimagine them for them. He begins to reassign them from what God has done in the past to save his people to what God is going to do through him in the very near future to save his people. And he takes then the bread that's on the table and he says... This is my body. This is my body. Take it and eat. And it describes this kind of fellowship or communion with God that they're now having. That they're, they're really, in their mind, taking in, although it's symbolic in nature, they're taking in, they're ingesting the body of their Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a powerful moment if you understand what's all going on there. 
if you recognize the plot to kill him and you recognize that he's been anointed for death and he's been telling people he's about to die and you recognize that all of the nation of Israel has been rehearsing this moment for 4,000 years and all of the nation of Israel has gathered together in this one place to watch what's about to happen when Jesus says, this is my body, take and eat. It's a powerful moment that was probably unrecognized by his disciples. But we, looking back, can see it in a way that they never did. I know, I know. And then he takes this cup, and he gives thanks. And then he gives it to them. And they all drink from the cup. And then he says this about the cup. This is my blood of the covenant, which they would seal covenants with blood, but this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now, this is a difference because the sacrificial lamb's blood was typically poured out for one. But Jesus now being the sacrifice for many. And of course, this plays out historically uh, for us, but going forward for them into the future as shortly after this, the temple will be destroyed. There will be no more sacrifices in Jerusalem. And now for 2,000 years, there's been no sacrificial lambs to pay the price of the sins of the people. <clears throat> but Jesus would say it's unnecessary because he pays the price of the sins of the people. That one sacrifice for many, that one sacrifice for all. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, and then he makes this statement, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so it looks forward, which is why when you see uh, in uh, the gospel, or in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is describing this, he says we will drink this over and over and over again in remembrance of him until he comes again. And then it won't be in remembrance of him, then it will be with him. A complete changeover that will happen there as we enter into this new kingdom of God. And then it says that they sang a hymn, uh, probably just the first and third verse, that's, that's the way we always did it in my church days when I was younger. But anyway, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what we're going to do this morning now is we're going to take part in communion as we do every Sunday. And we're going to do it a little bit different. And it's, it's not terribly different, but just a little bit different. The worship team can go ahead and come on up here. Um, but I'm going to have you guys go around like you always do to the communion stands. Everything will be exactly the same. You'll go to the outside edge of your row. You'll either come forward or backwards to that nearest stand. You'll take the bread, which Jesus said, this is my body. You'll take the cup, which Jesus said, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for many, just like you always do. You'll return to your seats, and I'm just going to be watching. Once everybody has sat down, then we will take communion together. So instead of taking it on your own, how I normally have you do it on Sunday, now with the backdrop of this teaching, the reminder of the moment that led to this, we'll do this together as a church family in communion with one another and communion with God. So if the worship team's ready to start playing, I'm going to go ahead and, and bless this real quick, and then we will go into a moment of communion. Well, Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I give thanks for him and for his work, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. Lord, I'm thankful for your word that passes all of this forward to us. 
uh, that we can see that this is just not a, a rote behavior for us. It's just not a routine that we go through. Lord, for us, it's a remembrance of the gospel. Lord, would you make it fresh and new to us today? Father, this would truly be worship for us. Father, in this moment, that you would be honored by your people. Father, would you knit us together in this moment? Would you knit us together in this remembrance? That it wouldn't just be a random act to us, but it would be at this time and in this way with this group of people that we remember your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you and we love you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up and worship.